Hello and welcome to this new edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS. And today I'm joined with Professor David Miles of Imperial College, a former member of the Monetary Policy Committee uh, of the Bank of England and author of a recent report in the IFS Green Budget on managing the UK's ever-increasing debt. This week we're going to talk about that issue of debt and the fiscal response of the government to the coronavirus pandemic, how much it's been borrowing, what effect that might have in the future. And we might also touch on that issue of monetary policy as well and how that has or hasn't been supporting the government's fiscal policy. But David, why don't we start just by um, looking at the sheer scale um, of the government's debt and borrowing. We're expecting borrowing of something like £350 billion this year, which is something like six or seven times what we'd originally expected. And in normal times, we think, oh my goodness, that is really quite terrifying. How can government possibly be doing that? I mean, how worried should we be about that scale of borrowing? Well, you're, you're right that it's extraordinary in terms of its scale. What's also extraordinary is that we've had such an enormous increase in borrowing, and yet there has been no increase in the cost of government borrowing, which was already at a very low level, and has, if anything, slightly moved further south. And so if you ask the question, is is, is the market concerned about the scale of borrowing? Well, the price reveals that people are willing to pay a great deal to buy UK government debt. They are willing to fund the UK government at interest rates which are as low as they've probably ever been in the history of this country. And the message from the market prices of UK government debt is nothing much to worry about here. Of course, that, that, that's surprising in the light of just how vast is the amount of borrowing, pretty much unprecedented outside wartime, uh, that we're going to see this year and probably continuing into next year. So if you look at the market, the message is we're not really terribly worried about this. Uh, why? I mean, it is. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, the level of interest rates you're talking about are astonishingly low. I mean, when you look at the index-linked uh, debt, for example, a recent auction went in at minus two percent. In other words, if you invest a thousand pounds in this debt now you're basically guaranteeing yourself £500 back in 30 years' time or so. That doesn't sound like a great deal. It doesn't sound like a great deal, does it? Um, Except it's a great deal if you're the person trying to sell the debt. Uh, As you rightly say, the UK government is able to borrow £1,000 now and in real inflation-adjusted terms, hand back about half that amount a few decades down the road. And and it can fix that right now. Um, I suppose it's a reflection of two things, this this interesting phenomenon. One is that it's part of a long-term trend of declining real interest rates. So it's not not a very recent phenomenon, and it certainly predates the the arrival of the the pandemic and the economic disaster that it's generating – if you, if you go back to the period when the UK government first issued inflation-proof debt, 
sort of early 1980s, the interest rate on longer term, the real interest rate on that longer term inflation proof debt was somewhere around 4% or so. It then gradually started declining so that by the 19, mid 1990s, it was down to about 2% or so. It had kind of got down to about zero just before the financial crisis. It then headed into negative territory. And it's been very, very gently on a downward trajectory, which is in some ways surprisingly smooth for the best part of 35 years. And there's all kinds of economic theories as to why this may have happened. Some people favour the idea that although the savings rate in the UK is low, we're part of a global financial market which intermediates savings. And the global savings rate, particularly in the period since China has become such an important player in global financial markets, the global savings rate may have risen above the global demand to raise funds to finance investment so that the the equilibrium interest rate on relatively safe things, UK government debt has been considered a relatively safe thing, has been gradually declining for quite a long time. And that seems to me a a perfectly coherent story. Um, You could add to it another story, which is not inconsistent with it, but simply adds another element to the puzzle, or, or, or rather adds a partial explanation to what is otherwise this puzzlingly low level of real interest rates, which is that we've had a few things come along in the last several years, starting really with the global financial uh, crisis um, and now the pandemic, which I think has made people quite rationally believe that the world is a much more risky place than they had thought. I don't think anybody before the financial crisis thought that something like that would happen. And I rather suspect that most of us, um, until January or so of this year, didn't think that anything like the pandemic would happen, that the UK economy would be closed down for several months. So that might generate a degree of perception of risk in the world that's larger than people had ever thought. And in that world, they may want to cling on to some assets which at least generate a known return, even if that return is of the order of minus a couple of percent a year. And if you're investing it for 10, 20 years, you're sort of guaranteeing in real terms you'll lose a big chunk of your money, but at least it's safe. Which is another way of saying people are scared of um, pretty much everything else. Um, How much does, I mean, you know, just going off on a little bit of a a tangent here. I mean, when when I learned some economics a long time ago um, and one learned about, um, you know, savings and so on, one one was sort of told that, uh, you know, you put money away um, and you put it away because you're, you know, for a number of years and you get paid for putting it away for a number of years because you discount the future and you wouldn't put it away and save it if you got less back than you um than you put in given that you know most people sort of value today more than they value 30 years hence i mean does this sort of undermine um sort of fundamental bits of what i learned as as an economist and how one should think about everything to do about theories of saving and investment and um you know how people actually behave 
I think when we talk about the return on savings, of course, there's so many different ways in which you can save money. Some are sort of extremely risky. You could buy the equity of a startup company in Uzbekistan, and that would be a very risky investment, and it might generate a lot of money, and you might lose all your money. Or you could put money in a UK government bond or something in between, buy some land or property, or put money in to the UK uh, FTSE 100 companies, diversify it across them. And most of those assets, on average, are still... Um, very likely yielding positive returns. And the UK stock market is priced in such a way that it probably on average will generate a positive return. And I think what we've seen is the the difference in returns between different categories of assets depending on their perceived risk is really what's opened up enormously. Um, And it's the fact that UK government bonds, the inflation-proof ones, are considered, at least for many UK investors, as about the safest thing you can invest in, in a very unsafe world, that they may generate a negative return, although on average, the assets that people are saving into generate a somewhat positive return. So I think it's it's the sort of the safety premium on UK gilts that makes their rate of return negative, although on average, things that people hold still probably generate a positive return. Okay, so that's, uh, so, you know, that again is really saying that there's a huge demand for UK government debt. I mean, in that circumstance, in that circumstance in which we're paying negative um, returns on it, is there any limit to the amount that the government can borrow? I mean, is this a sort of, you know, not just a free lunch, but, you know, you get lunch and you get paid for it. I mean, why, why don't we just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing? Well, I think the answer to that question is, yes, there must there must be a limit. Um, there's a limit in the sense that although many investors at the moment like buying UK longer-term debt, they would surely get fed up with it if year after year the UK government was issuing £300-400 billion of long-dated gilts. And then you'd have to put, persuade them to hold some more by offering a a higher interest rate, maybe a much higher interest rate. There's another factor, of course, which is that at the moment, people perceive this debt apparently as super safe. And they think that the probability of the UK government defaulting is extremely low. Um, And that may be a, a perfectly rational thing to believe when the outstanding stock of debt although very high by recent standards, is, is not as high as it's been at several points in the past. So the stock of debt now is about annual GDP in the UK, government debt, that is. That stock of debt will almost certainly go up a bit further. Maybe it'll be 110, 120, maybe even 130% of GDP um, a year or so down the road. There's a perception that it won't carry on like that and that we won't get to 200, 250, 300% of GDP, because if we did, if we got to three or 400% of, G, of annual GDP as the outstanding debt, I think there would be a serious question then about whether even at very low interest rates, the UK could, in the distant future, raise enough tax revenue to actually pay the interest on that debt. Those worries, I think, are, are quite low at... 100% of GDP of debt, maybe they'll stay lower 110, 120. 
I wouldn't bank on it still being low if we had four or five years of three, four hundred billion pound of guilt issuance and you were at 200 percent of GDP as the stock of debt and rising. Some people would point to Japan and say that they've done exactly that. They've now got a stock of debt over 200% of national income and have had interest rates not dissimilar to the ones that we're looking at for a very long time. Are we are we moving into Japanese territory where this will become you know, normal for a very long period and indeed we will see the stock of debt rising? Well, it's, it's, it's possible. I... I, I... I rather doubt it, though. I think one of the characteristics of Japanese government debt is that it is very largely, probably overwhelmingly held by Japanese investors, some of whom are in in some sense part of the state sector. So there's very little Japanese government debt held outside Japan. That's not true of UK government debt. Um, A fairly chunky proportion um, certainly more than 10 or 15%, probably nearer 30 or 40% is held overseas. In, in some sense, you could think of the marginal investor in UK government bonds as not being a UK pension fund or uh, a UK individual household that likes putting their money into the, the, the ICER that's invested in UK government bonds. It may be instead a sovereign wealth fund. It may be a hedge fund in California. It may be the Norwegian state um, oil fund. And they may look favourably on the chances of the UK paying the debt at the moment, but somewhat less so um, 10 years down the road or even three or four years down the road if the deficit is still as high as it is today. Well, it's interesting what you said there about the um, Japanese, uh, some of the investors in Japanese debt being you know, quite closely related to the Japanese um, state. I mean, that brings me on to a question about the role of the Bank of England in holding UK government debt, because actually, pretty closely, the additional uh, debt issued by the government this year has been matched by additional um, purchases of, of debt by by the Bank of England. I mean, should we think of that debt as any different to debt that is held by actors in the private sector? I mean, is it debt in the normal, real sense of the term, that um, debt bought by a pension fund or a foreign investor is debt in, 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 in the way that the British government should see it? Well, it it isn't quite the same, um, and there's a rather sort of, for some people, strange seeming merry-go-round, whereby what happens is the following: the Bank of England buys some uh, gilts, not directly from the UK government, but in in the secondary market by buying gilts that the UK government has issued at some point in the past. It then parks them in a big pot, and essentially the interest payments that the Bank of England gets, which are the coupon payments on the bonds from the UK government, accumulate in that pot. That's funded by the Bank of England borrowing, essentially, from the private markets at the bank rate that the Bank of England sets. That bank rate at the moment is 0.1 of 1%. Now, if the interest rate that the Bank of England's paying on the funding of the bonds that it's purchased is lower than the interest the UK government is paying into the Bank of England, then there'll be a profit generated. 
and that profit goes back to the UK government. Now, that sounds all a bit strange. Effectively, what it means is that the UK government is, in some sense, retiring some of its longer-term debt and replacing it with debt that ultimately does cost something, uh, but what it costs is bank rate. So it's switching, the UK government, with the uh, help of the Bank of England, it's switching some of its existing outstanding debt that might be paying um, higher interest rates, slightly higher interest rates, and replacing it with debt that's very short maturity, very short term, paying bank rate. So it's not, it's not free exactly. I mean, it's close to free, but only because interest rates are so very low at point one. Now, at some point, when the Bank of England increases interest rates, and that may be some, some way down the road, and who knows, the next change in interest rates from the Bank of England might even be in a, a negative direction. But at some point, we might get us back to something a bit more normal, a more significantly positive interest rate. Then the cost of that part of debt, which has been bought government debt bought by the Bank of England will have a funding cost which becomes more significantly positive. It'll be whatever bank rate turns into. Um, so some people think of it as, oh, well, this th- these purchases by the Bank of England mean that the government, you know, has got free money. That's not quite right. It's, it, it's money which ultimately is funded from the private sector at the payment of bank rate. It just so happens that bank rate is really low at the moment. I guess there's another question about about that money. I mean, the Bank of um, England uh, is part, in a sense, of the state apparatus. It's sort of one part of the state buying debt from another. Um, And how do we know the bank's ever going to um, pay this back? I uh, I mean, this looks like money sort of magic from nowhere? A few answers to that. It sort of looks like money magic from nowhere, but I think the the economic underlying reality of it is that it allows the UK government to fund itself at the interest rate set by the Bank of England bank rate. So it's not free. It isn't as if the Bank of England has printed up a load of banknotes which pays zero interest always, and use those to buy a load of government bonds held by people in the private sector, and then effectively burns the government bonds and leaves the notes and coins out there. Although people sometimes describe it as if that is what the Bank of England is doing. It prints up banknotes and it buys the bonds like that, but it's not really doing that. What it's doing is um, financing it through raising money at bank rate from the private sector. Um, Now, that may mean, of course, that the UK government may wish some way down the road that the Bank of England could carry on setting bank rates at an extremely low level because that is the nominal interest rate that it's paying on that part of debt which the Bank of England carries on holding. But the Bank of England you know, has an inflation target and may take the view some years from now, well, we need interest rates of 3% or 3.5% or 4% or 5%, in which case it isn't really helping the government, particularly at that point, in keeping its funding costs extremely low by holding on the Bank of England, holding on to the debt it's bought, because it's really costing the government 
whatever bank rate is, and it could be 4% or 5%. So the pressure that the Bank of England might come under to hold on to those bonds depends a bit upon what bank rate is. And if the Bank of England is setting bank rate hit and inflation target, then it doesn't at all guarantee that those bonds it may carry on holding generate free money to the government. Supposing you were to get a a government that was less um, attached to Bank of England independence, um, what would be the constraints on it saying, well, look, we're just not going to pay this money back effectively? Well, if, if, if the Bank of England decided that in order to fulfil its objectives to try and hit the inflation target, that the right interest rate for the economy, the right bank rate was, let's say, this may be far in the future, of course, the Bank of England thought, well, bank rate should be 3.5%. Uh, now, bank rate is the rate that the Bank of England pays on the reserves of the private banking sector in the UK. In other words, banks in the UK hold reserves of the Bank of England and they pay interest. They're not like notes and coins which pay no interest. They pay interest at bank rate. If the Bank of England was setting bank rate at 3.5%, that means that there's a lot of reserves in the Bank of England that are paying 3.5%. Now, the bonds, the gilts that the UK government has bought, held by the Bank of England, are in a sense the counterpart to the reserves that pay bank rate, which is how the Bank of England has funded the purchase of the gilts. So if the UK government said to the Bank of England, oh, um, just just forget all those gilts that you own, we're not going to pay the interest anymore, um, that'll be fine, won't it? Because you're part of the public sector. There's no point in us giving you these interest payments on that mountain of debt that you own. And the Bank of England would become bankrupt because if it had a mountain of reserves that had to pay bank rate, now 3.5%, say, it's got no income from the mountain of gilts it owns, which the UK government has said, well, we're going to stop paying paying anything back to you on that lot. So the government would just have to recapitalise the Bank of England and it would have been a waste of time cancelling the gilts. So I think the question about the incentives that future governments might have to, in a sense, put some pressure on the Bank of England are really about bank rate. That's, uh, I mean, that's a very helpful um, uh, rebuttal, I think, to those who uh, think that this is just like the Bank of England printing money. I think you made a fairly clear explanation as to why it's really quite different and something on which the government will have to continue to pay interest and indeed redeem that debt um, going forward. Um, but the if you look at that, let's come back up out of that rabbit hole, as it were, uh, and look again at the fiscal and monetary response to the current crisis. The fiscal response has been 350 billion or so um, of borrowing. The monetary response so far has been uh, over 200 billion of quantitative easing. That's buying some of that debt and a reduction in interest rates now to. 0.1%, the lowest in history since the bank was founded in, I think it was 1694. Um, is there any more? Is there any more space at all for monetary policy here? 
Well, I think I think on the interest rate front, the only way you can really go for well, there's a little bit of margin to take bank rate down to zero, but then you're obviously into negative territory. Um, and there's a bit of debate going on within the members of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England at the moment about the wisdom of taking interest rates into negative territory. And I'm personally slightly sceptical about whether that would be the most sensible thing to do. Um, certainly the message that's coming back very strongly from financial institutions, from banks to the Bank of England is, this is messy, this is difficult, this is going to make life hard for us. Now, you might say, well, that's just tough. It's what the economy needs. But if it really does weaken and damage the banking system because they can't, for example, charge negative interest easily on retail deposits because you and I with bank deposits would get so fed up with that that the damage it would do to the customer relationship between households and banks if they were charged to put interest rates, uh, charged to put their money into the banks, that relationship would be so soured that I think most banks would say, we're simply not going to do that. So then they're, they're going to get squeezed by not being able to um, pass on a negative interest rates to their depositors and so reduce their cost of funding, that would limit their ability to make negative interest rates be passed on to their people who've borrowed from them. So there's a question about whether, well, do you try and force banks to sort of pass it on and squeeze their profitability, which may not be the most sensible thing to do in a world in which they may find they've got some bad debts coming down the road anyway. Why would you want to erode their strength when they're just about to be tested by bad debts picking up. So there's, there's a kind of question there about if you if you do damage the banking system to some extent with negative interest rates set by the Bank of England, is that actually going to have a more negative impact upon overall economic conditions than the marginal positive impact of some companies being able to borrow a little bit more cheaply? Now, you could take a more positive view in it all and say, oh, yes, well, that it doesn't seem to have done a huge amount of damage in the euro area where the European Central Bank's been setting negative interest rate for many months now. On the other hand, it hasn't exactly generated a splurge of new investment in the euro area. And you know, UK unemployment has been consistently lower than euro area unemployment for rather a long time. And negative interest rates didn't dent that gap at all. So I think you know, in some ways, the best you could say about the experiment by the European Central Bank is it doesn't seem to have been a disaster, but it certainly hasn't generated a, 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 a strong economic recovery and has left the average unemployment rate, you know, well north of where the UK unemployment rate is. So I'm, you know, somewhat sceptical about the argument that the Bank of England would be very well advised to take interest rates significantly into negative territory. In fact, in fact, take them into negative territory at all. So not much scope on interest rates. Uh, is there any limit to quantitative easing? I think if there is a limit, it's significantly higher than we're at at the moment. Um, I think that... Where, where the Bank of England has been quite successful so far, I think, is in persuading the wider world that this is not 
something that is inevitably inflationary down the road, it is not going to end up in a form of either high inflation or default on government debt. And neither does it indicate that the independence of the Bank of England uh, has really diminished enormously and therefore there won't be any um, bulwark against monetary financing, which ends up often being inflationary down the road. And the reason I think one can be fairly confident about that is that there are just hardly anybody forecasting significantly higher inflation down the road in the UK. Now, one can get one measure of that by the difference between um, the real interest rate on inflation-proof debt and the interest rate on so-called conventional nominal bonds. And further down the road, 10, 15, 20 years ahead, the so-called implied inflation rate has stayed pretty close to the Bank of England's target, which is where it was um, before the recent enormous expansion in quantitative easing. So, so far anyway, um, the government and the Bank of England have convinced the wider world that these extraordinary operations by the Bank of England are, if you like, a, a temporary smoothing operation to stop indigestion in the gilts market from a huge unexpected flow of gilts being thrown onto the market in a short period of time. And the Bank of England is kind of helping smooth that out. And I think that's how people are interpreting it at, at the moment. And maybe would continue to do that if we got a bit more quantitative easing. But if it became the case that routinely, year after year, the Bank of England was essentially buying all the net new bonds issued by the UK government, I don't think that situation would persist. Okay, so 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 some some limit. Uh, I think what you're in, implying, in a sense, is if the market simply came to expect that uh, the bank would respond to additional debt issuance by just automatically buying it because that was the best way of financing government spending, that would start to become seriously problematic. I mean, given you know, as we come towards the end of this, I mean, we're you know we're looking at a period of increased borrowing. We're looking at a world in which there is some, but not unlimited, scope for more quantitative easing. At what point and to what extent should the Chancellor start to think about reducing um, his borrowing um, in order to at least stabilise debt um, as a fraction of national income? Or to what extent should he be taking the fact that he can borrow for free, um, effectively, um, as a signal that um, there really is a strong case for continuing to borrow more? Well, I suspect you and I would agree strongly that the, the point to think about trying to reduce borrowing, bring the deficit down sharply, get back to um, something closer to balanced budget is not now. Um, we're still in you know, an economic disaster zone, frankly. It, given the, the 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 nature of the pandemic and maybe here unfortunately for many months to come and now is the time to use the sort of full scope of fiscal policy to support people who are not able to work and have lost their job uh, and to think about putting the um, bringing the, the deficit down right now I think would be would be a very bad mistake um 
but we won't be here forever. Um, you know, there may be a vaccine, hopefully not too far down the road, or there may be the availability of super fast testing where you just lick a piece of paper and it tells you in one minute whether you've got the virus or not. And if you, if everybody could do that many times a day, the virus would die out very, very quickly. So these things are not entirely science fiction. They may be coming. Um, so we could be in a dramatically different situation, um, you know, six months from now. And we will look back just as you reach the end of a war and say, you know, thank God that's over. Um, so I suspect that we both agree that, you know, this process of, of trying to bring the deficit down should not be um, top priority right now at all. Um, when would it become so? Well, I think in a sense, it, it's at the point that this crisis is is over in the sense that it looks very likely that the virus is now under control and it's dwindling and it'll soon be, to all intents and purposes, behind us. And I hope that that is not that far down the road. And at that point, who knows, could be sometime next year, um, then you kind of, bit like at the end of a, a war, you look around at the state that we're all in at the end of this, you dust yourself down and then say, right, now we need a plan over some rather long horizon, not sort of two or three years, but maybe a much longer horizon, to stabilise and start bringing down the level of debt, just as, as happened, as, as you will know, you know better than I, after the end of the Second World War, the First World War, the Napoleonic War, where over the course of the next sort of 10, 20 years, actually the debt came down um, quite markedly, not because it was all inflated away. That didn't happen in the 1950s and 60s. It happened in the late 60s and 70s. But between 1945 and 1965, the debt came down a lot without lots of inflation. There wasn't in, um, inflation um, persistently after the Napoleonic War, and then the debt came down. It was that you got back to more normal rates of economic growth, which you know was a huge help, of course, in bringing deficits uh, down, and that's ultimately what brought the debt to GDP ratio. That getting to those levels of economic growth uh, was obviously crucial, and our experience over the last decade is that we haven't got there very close to that. Uh, and that must be a worry in terms of getting the deficit or the debt down over a long period if we don't return to significant levels of yeah, Yes. I mean, it, it may be that you have to plan on growth being not the 2.5% that we kind of got used to over the last 50-odd years in the UK, but, you know, 1.5% and generate spending and tax plans that can stabilise the debt-GDP ratio and maybe bring it back down from above 100 to a little bit less than 100 in a world in which growth is 1% or 1.5% and not 2.5%. And that will make for tough decisions. There's no doubt about that. So let me let me end by just asking you, um, in, in a sense, to repeat yourself, but I think, um, I think rather important. I'm the Chancellor two, down, two years down the road. You're, you're advising me. Um, I'm saying, look, I, 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 there's this huge demand for public spending. I want to level up you know, the left-behind areas. I need to spend more on health, need to spend more on social care. 
Um, I don't really want to put up taxes. And, and look, you know, the markets will buy my debt for next to nothing. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I can see that there are other countries out there, not just Japan, with higher levels than debt that, uh, that, that than we have. Um, why, why can't I, you know, at least for a few years, Professor Miles, at least for a few years, uh, we can borrow, you know, quite a lot um, in order to get uh, in, in order to pay for this stuff. I mean, why, why, why do you want me to have a deficit reduction strategy now when there are all these things I want to spend money on and it's really, really easy to continue borrowing? Well, the at least for a few years is the crucial part there, isn't it? If, if you can indeed convince the wider world that running extremely large deficits because there's all kinds of worthwhile things you can do, spending the money on infrastructure and training young people, admirable things, um, and that they will yield a return further down the road, which will generate the taxes that allow you to repay the debt and bring the debt down, then that's all just fine. Um, but you do have to still, even even if real interest rates were minus 2%, if you are investing things which have a rate of return more negative than minus 2%, you still may have a credibility issue with the people that you want to buy your debt. Now, you might, you and I might say, well, surely there are lots of things the government could usefully do that will generate a marginally positive rate of return um, greater than minus 2%. Well, maybe. HS2, full stop. (laughs) What's the rate of return on that? I think it's more negative than minus 2%. If that's the kind of things that you want to spend the money on, Chancellor, do not bank on being able to do that even for just a few years because people will start to realise why you're spending all that money Then, they, and, and they won't like it. They, they, they don't mind it now because it's perfectly clear right now that the government is doing things that actually have a very high return because they're keeping companies going they're keeping employment up. The furlough scheme is stopping people from being redundant. The rate of return on that kind of spending is very high. But don't think you can just do that year after year after this pandemic, thankfully, is behind us. Well, that's a very useful uh, reminder of the importance of government spending money well uh, for all sorts of reasons, but not least in order to maintain fiscal credibility and to continue actually to remain solvent. Uh, And as um, uh, Chris Giles in the Financial Times, among others, has been writing recently, it's not even clear that all of the money they've been spending recently has been useful. And uh, if you're you're a Keynesian, um, the point is not to uh, spend money on digging holes and filling them in again. Uh, The point is to spend money on uh, projects which actually are worthwhile over the longer run. And that's much easier to find when you're in the depths of a recession Uh, than maybe it is in normal times. But David, thank you very much for that uh, phenomenal overview of um, both monetary and fiscal policy. We could have gone on, but we've already overstayed our welcome uh, somewhat. So we will wrap up there. Um, If you enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe and rate us 
And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.